and turn together with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We've read these opening words now a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, but it'll do us no harm to be familiar with the passage that's in front of us. So Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read from the, read from the first verse. Let's hear the Lord's word. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. And we're just going to end there at the, at the end of verse 11. We trust the Lord to bless the reading of his word, especially and tonight we're looking, I suppose, at this section from about verse 3 down through to the end of about verse um, number 8. In the last couple of weeks, as we've begun to get into this letter, I've emphasized that a number of times that one of the major themes throughout the whole letter is the theme of joy. So Paul is writing while under house arrest in Rome, and his circumstances don't look particularly wonderful. Who knows what the future might hold and his present circumstances, he's restricted. And yet, in the midst of it, he's joyful. And ultimately, his joy was in the Lord. He was joyful as he looked to the Savior and as he rested in the care of the Savior, despite his current condition. And he appreciates as well what his Savior has already done for him. So he's joyful in the Lord. But not only was he joyful in the Lord, but... What becomes apparent pretty much straight away in the letter is that he was also incredibly joyful in the Lord's people. Paul had a heart bursting with joy and gratitude and thankfulness over his fellow believers. If you look at how he greets the church here, he says in verses 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. He's saying, every time I think of you, every time you come into my mind, into my heart, and as I pray over you, my heart is filled with thankfulness and with joy. And he makes clear what the source of that joy is in verse 5. He's joyful and joyful for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day 
until now. He's saying, as I think of you, church at Philippi, my heart is bursting with this joy because of your fellowship with me, your, your participation with me in the gospel. So again, Paul is ultimately joyful in the Lord. But as part of that, he, he quite rightly has a genuine joy in the people of God. And certainly that's something that ought to be cultivated in the hearts of God's people and in our hearts as well. Not just a joy in the Lord, but a genuine and a sincere joy in the Lord's people and in one another as together we serve Christ, those with whom we have fellowship in Christ. So especially as you think of Paul's expression, how he's joyful for the fellowship of the Philippians, I want to take up that idea this evening. We're thinking about joyful fellowship with one another. Joyful fellowship with one another. Now, first of all, let me say something about the significance of fellowship. We're thinking about joyful fellowship. Well, what do we mean by fellowship? It's generally good to start a discussion by defining your terms, otherwise you end up talking past someone. Um, I have been on and off in conversation with uh, a man from sort of oneness Pentecostalism background, and I've, and I've been discovering as time's gone on that there's a lot of terms he was using, and I thought he meant one thing, and he means something totally different, and you find that, and if you don't define your terms, you're, you're talking past each other a bit. So what is this fellowship that Paul is speaking about that, that he takes such, such joy in? Well, whenever we use that term, fellowship, we quite often use it in the more shallow sense. You know, we speak about fellowship quite often referring merely to spending time with one another, just having a good time in one another's company. And don't get me wrong, that, that can be part of fellowship. So there's nothing wrong with using the word in that setting. But we need to be clear that the word fellowship conveys the bigger idea of a full participation together. You could say there's the idea of being invested in something together or maybe even invested in one another it doesn't even necessarily have to uh, do with spending time with one another, literally. Uh, it's got that bigger idea of participating together in a common cause. If you think about Galatians 2 and verse 9, uh, Paul is writing there about how he went to Jerusalem. He met with James and Peter and also with John. And they understood the calling that Paul had been given to bring the gospel largely to the Gentiles. And so in Galatians 2 verse 9, Paul says, They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go onto the heathen and they onto the circumcision. So what you've got happening there in practice is these two groups, Paul and Barnabas on one side, you've got the other apostles on the other, and they're going to be going in different directions. One of, one of these groups is going to be ministering largely uh, to uh, Jewish communities uh, and seeking to establish the church among Judaism. Uh, the other group, Paul and Barnabas, are going to be focusing more on Gentile regions. They're going separate ways. They're not going to be literally in each other's presence very much, but yet... This whole, um, this whole engagement is described as including the offering of the right hand of fellowship. And what's conveyed there is that though they're going these separate ways, that yet there's this bond between them, there's this participation between them. They are, they are in fellowship one with the other. They might not be literally together, but they are 
invested in one another, and together they're all invested in the same big cause. The other apostles might be laboring among the Jews, and Paul and Barnabas more among the Gentiles, but nevertheless, there's this common cause, this common drive, this common ambition. There's fellowship. When Paul writes to the Philippians about their fellowship with them in the gospel, he hasn't actually been able to spend an awful lot of time in Philippi with with the believers. But nevertheless, they have been participants together with him in the gospel cause. He means more than time spent together, you see. He means more than just having some shared interests and, you know, two people who love to talk about carpentry coming together and talking over carpentry. He's talking about something bigger than that. Real participation, real teamwork together, laboring together in the cause of Christ. And, you know, that that is how believers are meant to see our connection to one another. We're brought together in a church, not just because we enjoy one another's company, although I trust that in the main we do, um, but it should be more than that. It has to be more than that. In fact, we're not even brought together just because we've got a common interest, although we certainly, I trust, do have a common interest in Christ, and we're united together through our union with Christ. But again, fellowship, it even goes beyond just a mere shared interest. It's not just, I like Christ and so do you. It really involves actual standing together in the gospel cause. It's, it's going to involve practically being invested in, in one another's lives. You see that idea very obviously here in the form of prayer. And Paul, when he writes this letter, is at quite some distance from the church at Philippi, and he can't go to them. But he very much sees himself as a participant in the work at Philippi. And, and to that end, he's diligently remembering them in prayer. He speaks here about every prayer of his. When he's making requests on their behalf, he does so with joy. But with this joyful heart, he's seeking the, good, uh, the goodness of God for the Philippians. Uh, we're not really looking at it tonight so much, but you can see from verse 9 something of what he's actually Seeking for them, he's praying that their love might abound yet more and more. He's not just praying for them even that um, practically they'll be provided for, although sometimes I'm sure that might have been on his heart. But the bigger thing is he's, he's praying that they go on with the Lord, that there's spiritual fruit, that their love abounds. And he's, he's praying for them. He's seeking the goodness of God in their lives. He's seeking the work of God in their lives. He's not just at a distance and they're out of sight, out of mind. No, he's a participant. They're on his heart. He's praying for them. He's, he's laboring in prayer for the good of the church at Philippi. That's part of fellowship. Now, there's a test for you and me. Is, is this what our fellowship together looks like? Even here, of course, it should look like this even when we take in other believers further afield. But, but we could start at the easy level. Well, what about our fellowship among the believers here, where we are practically together, where we're literally brought together? You know, do we have an investment in one another so that it's more that our fellowship is more than just meeting up you know, a couple of times a week, having a little catch-up? And going our separate ways or, you know, throughout the week and, and maybe our prayer meeting nights and other times, are, are we invested in, for example, praying for one another, seeking the goodness of God in the lives of fellow believers? You know, that, that, that should be a key thing when it comes to us standing as a, as a church together for the Lord. You know, 
praying to the Lord, Lord, bless that brother, bless that sister, bless uh, and meet the need for that person. Help them to go on with, with you. You know, if we're taking fellowship seriously, a big part of it is this heart of prayer for one another. You're investing yourself, you're, you're laboring for their good, even as you pray. Now, on top of that, if we're taking fellowship seriously, we also ought to appreciate that sometimes that will involve very practical care for one another. As Paul spoke about his gladness for the fellowship that he had with the Philippians, he says in verse 7, that he has them on his heart because both in his imprisonment, his bonds, and in his defense and proclamation of the gospel, he says the Philippians, they continue to be partakers of his grace, of this calling that the Lord has graciously given to him. They're participants with him. He, He can say that they have fellowship with him in the gospel from the very first day until now, and There are very practical things that he's got in mind when he says that. For example, when he says that they've fellowshiped with him since the first day, he's conscious, I'm sure, that the Philippian church has supported him very practically since pretty much straight away when they first came to faith. as, as As we mentioned when we looked at the end part of the letter, maybe a couple of weeks ago, he partly writes this letter because he's thanking the Philippians for a gift that they've sent to him. But even as he does that, he he says in verse 16 that even in Thessalonica, he sent once and again onto my necessity. He's talking about that time when on his second missionary journey, he'd passed through Philippi. People like Lydia, the jailer, had been converted. Paul had to move on. He went on to Thessalonica. And he's saying, even then, even back then, just as soon as the church was established and I moved on to Thessalonica, even then you were, you were sending to me. Even then you were meeting my necessity. You were meeting my needs. You were, even then, seeing the need to participate with me. And you invested even practically supplying some of the finances and so on. The church at Philippi, certainly did not just think of, you know, we'll do our little bit of work here in Philippi, and, well, it was great to have Paul with us, and off he goes, and bye-bye, Paul, forget about him now. No, they had this real heart for the work. They, they see what he's doing for God. They, they say to themselves, you know, we're part of this. We, we've been brought into this church to be participants here, and, and he's involved in, in our work, and we're to be involved in his work, and so we'll practically supply the need for some of this. In fact, whenever Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians, he was able to remind them in chapter 2 that he didn't minister to them out of covetousness. He didn't seek money or finances from them. And of course, that would have reassured them as he reminded them of this. It would have reassured them that he wasn't just in it for the money. He wasn't just launching some clever scam so as to fleece the people. He hadn't been asking anything from them. And one of the reasons Paul could minister to them and not have to ask money from them was that the Philippian church had already taken this idea of fellowship seriously and they'd given themselves to it and they were sending resources to him. So there is this very practical element to fellowship and again, even as Paul writes this letter, you find that they're still caring for him right right to this day as he he writes. They're still caring for him. He, He writes the letter to thank them for a recent gift. He says in verse 18 of chapter 4 that he's full 
having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. This was just part of their fellowship. In fact, in Romans 15, verse 26, you read about the church in Macedonia and Achaia. That probably includes Philippi. And um, we're told that it hath pleased them. Paul says it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So there's another part of their fellowship. It wasn't just with Paul, this man that they'd met. They were making a certain contribution to the saints that were in Jerusalem. And I bring up that verse in Romans 15 because that word contribution, it's actually the same word, fellowship. They, they, they made a certain fellowship. Of course, it's talking about the money that they're sending. They made a certain fellowship, a certain contribution for the poor saints at Jerusalem. You could say this was a token of their fellowship together with the saints at Jerusalem. They've never met most of these people, but they see themselves as participants. There they are in Jerusalem, and they're part of the church like us. They're united to us in Christ. They're united to us in our, in our efforts to serve the Lord and to see the gospel go forth into the world. We're, we're participants with them. We're in fellowship with them. So they, they send this token. They send this gift. There, there's an identifying with them, a participating. Here's a church that took fellowship seriously. Uh, And this is one of the tests of genuine Christian fellowship. You know, are we ready to actually invest in one another, to show practical care for one another, to come alongside one another in times of need, to rejoice with one another and to weep with one another and to wait uh, with one another in prayer perhaps and and to enter into the trenches with uh, one another and to celebrate together in the Lord and to be participants. This is the kind of fellowship that the Lord calls us to. Now, with that in mind, let's think about the basis for this fellowship. We're called to participate together joyfully. And Paul gives us good good reason. Paul it makes it very clear what this, what kind of participation this is. He says in verse 5, he speaks of your fellowship in the gospel. He's, he's joyful for your fellowship in the gospel. So that, that, that phrase is very important. It's not just your fellowship, it's, it's your fellowship in the gospel. And with that phrase in mind, I think the first thing we could say about this, the basis for this fellowship is that it was produced as the, the natural result of the, the gospel work of Christ. You know, it's because of the, the life and death of our Savior. It's because of the work of the Spirit applying the gospel to us and bringing us to faith in Christ that we have fellowship together. Uh, we looked the other week there at Paul's description of himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, and he, he considers himself as one who was bought with a price. Well, so too were the Philippians, and they've been bought so as to be brought into the one household, into the household of the Lord. So together they stand, uh, one in in family, uh, through the gracious saving work of Jesus Christ. What was it that united a Jew like Paul with the Gentile believers of uh, of Philippi? What was it that united a a very devout religious man like Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, with a a, a violent man like the Philippian jailer, a soldier and and one who was on the point of taking his life. What unites these people together? So different in many ways. It's the gospel work of Christ. It's Christ who has died for them. 
It wasn't social status, it wasn't culture, it wasn't political views, it was their union with Christ. Christ had died for Paul, Christ had died for Lydia, Christ had died for the Philippian jailer and others as well. They're united as the beneficiaries of Christ's great work. That their fellowship then flows from the gospel work of Christ. It also it also involves the gospel cause of Christ. You know, any believer who has been saved by grace is saved so as to serve. Christ doesn't save us just so we can sit back and do nothing. He saves us to, we looked at this earlier, to um, bring about this, this people that are zealous for good works. He, he, he saves us to serve. Of course, again, that's why Paul took up the title of a servant, a servant a slave of Jesus Christ. He's, he's one who will serve the master. And so too are the, Philipp- the Philippians meant to be slaves, servants of Christ. So when, when God saves us, the cause of Christ becomes our cause and it becomes the cause of every child of God. Uh, the great commission was given to Paul to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But likewise, it was a commission for the Philippians as well. There's this common cause that our God would be glorified, that his kingdom would come more and more, that Christ would be proclaimed to the nations, and it's your cause, just as much as it's mine, just as much as it was Paul's. It's Christ's cause, you see. Now, that's something that should drive us to invest in one another, to support one another, to help one another, especially as we seek to stand where we are for the Savior. You know, the gospel has to be the bond between Christians, Because if we try and unite the Christian family on the basis of social status, well, then you end up either excluding the the higher-ups in society or else you exclude the lower down in society. If you try and unite on the basis of prosperity, well, then you find you get a church that's either everyone's very rich and they they all get along well because they're in the same sort of prosperous setting, or or else you get a church where everyone's very poor. No, the, the proper bond that Christ has given us is the gospel. We're we're saved through this gospel and we're saved now so as to invest ourselves in the gospel cause. Now, keep that in mind as we deal with fellow believers. Whenever you're dealing with others, they might be different from you in lots of ways, but here's the glue that holds us together, or at least that ought to. Our union with Christ and our participation together ultimately in his cause. That that shared investment should be very much in our minds when we're tempted to be divisive or to exclude or to have little time for one another or even when we're tempted to hold a bitter grudge against a fellow believer. We ought to bear this in mind. What will this do to the cause of Christ? We're both meant to be invested in it. What will this do to the cause of Christ? See, this is to be the bond. Let me add one more thing. That... As we think about the basis for fellowship, we could also speak about the gospel love of Christ. If you jump down to verse 7, Paul tells the Philippians, I have you in my heart. And he explains that he has such a heart for them, especially given how they have participated with them and how they've shown fellowship to him when he's been in bonds and when he's been setting forth the gospel. But he says he has this great heart for him, and then he, for, for them. And then he says in verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He's saying, God sees my heart. He sees 
my attitude toward you, and I can honestly say, and God can testify to it, I long after you. I have you in my heart in church at Philippi. And I'm sure that in part he means that he longs to be with them. I'm sure that's part of it when he says, I long after you. But it's more than that. In chapter 4, he, at the start of chapter 4, he speaks about my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for. My joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And there he's got this longing for them, but it's a longing that they go on with God, that they do his will, that they stand fast in the Lord. And I suspect that's what's included here when he says that he longs after them. He's, he's longing for their good. Of course, part of it is, yes, he would long to be with them and to have that practical fellowship together in, in person. But he also longs for their good. He's got this heart for their good. And he, and he says as he, as he longs after them, he does so in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that seems like a strange phrase to us because we don't talk like that anymore. But, or... I shouldn't say anymore. We don't talk like that in our culture. Yeah, the boils. Um, but the boils there is sort of like us talking about the heart. It's basically the same sort of idea. The internal organs, the, the seat of the emotions. He's basically speaking about the heart of Christ, as we would put it, as we would think of it. The, the heart of Christ, the, the inner strong feelings of Christ for his people. And Paul is essentially saying, you know, he, he longs for them. He, he has this love for them. He participates in the very love that Christ has for them. You know, Christ loves them. And Paul, if you like, joins with Christ in that great love for the church at Philippi. If you let me paraphrase it, the idea is you are loved deeply by Christ. And that same love is at work in me so that I love you too. To some extent, like he does. Now, this is something to keep in mind again when we deal with one another. There's plenty to frustrate you when you deal with fellow believers because let's face it, we're all sinners and we all have our defects and our personality clashes and for the, the various good aspects of our characters that, you know, where we can thank the Lord for his grace in our lives, there are still rough edges that we're looking to the Lord to, to smooth and to polish. There, there's still very deep wounds that are, that are not fully healed yet in terms of our, our character and so it's, it's very easy when we're dealing with one another to focus on all the negatives. And you, you see all the problems in someone's life and the way that they're not the way they ought to be just yet. But remember when you're dealing with a fellow Christian, that person is deeply loved by Christ. Deeply loved. And because they're deeply loved by your Savior, because Christ has such a heart of compassion toward them, you're to have that heart too. What a dreadful thing when there's bitterness and division among Christ's people, when there's hostility maybe between two individuals or else between two factions in a church. And yet, when, when you're dealing with fellow believers, both sides are deeply loved by Christ and yet at war with each other. What a tragedy that is. Now, of course, I recognize that practically it can sometimes be difficult to work through the problems that develop, but surely the, the idea that Christ deeply loves that individual, that, that one that I've struggled to get on with, or maybe that one that I'm holding a grudge against wrongly. The idea that Christ deeply loves them, his desire is for their good. Well, surely that should motivate us to do the hard work of 
setting aside division and, and seeking to be a participant in that person's good since they're deeply loved by Christ. You know, what, what a basis for joyful fellowship. I am loved by Christ. They are loved too by Christ. We're, we're part of this family that, that the Savior has a heart for. He, he loves us. What a basis for joyful fellowship together. Now, in the next place, we'll think about, I'll call it the author of this fellowship. The author of this fellowship. As Paul says that he's praying for the Philippians with joy because of their fellowship from the first day until now. He says then in verse 6 that he is confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ he is very aware that he has this fellowship with the Philippians because God authored a work in them the Lord began something good in them now can I say in passing you know there's a verse it's probably one of the highlights of the the letter to the Philippians, a verse that gives an incredible amount of personal comfort to you if your trust is in Christ. You know, as a believer, you can go through various stages or various seasons of life, sometimes numerous times. When you first come to Christ, you might have, you know, the initial burst of excitement and gladness in your heart over the promises that Christ has given to you and the salvation that's yours, and you're you're just ready to lay hold of it and to rejoice in it and praise the Lord and you're serving God and you're glad. Sadly, sometimes that that fades away a little and you can end up maybe in a a time of life where you're just so aware of your own sins and your shortcomings and your failures as you battle with sin and temptation. And and sometimes that can bring you to a place of despair where you're looking to yourself and you're wondering, you know, how will I ever overcome the sin in my life? How will I ever go on with God the way that I ought? I'm, I'm... Because there are those times in life, here's a verse that should be a real treasure to us. It should really thrill our hearts. Paul Paul writes here with absolute confidence. The God who authored a work in you, who began a good work when he saved you by grace. And when he brought you into this gospel fellowship, he who began it, he will continue to perform it. He will bring it to completion. He will continue to perform that work and to complete it right up until the day of Christ. You know, the Lord does not leave a job half finished. You know, when God starts a work in you, you could say he's put his name to that work. His, his reputation is on the line. He's put his name to that work. Will he be able to make the transformation that he claims he'll make in you? Well, God has put his name to that work and he has a, a great desire to glorify his own name appropriately so he's god there's no one else to glorify greater than him he'll do that work he'll he'll do it what he begins he'll finish his name's put to it he's not going to bring dishonor to his own name by leaving it half done he'll do it ephesians 5 26 reminds us christ died for us so that he might sanctify and cleanse his church with the washing of water by the word and he's got this final day the day of christ in in view it is that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish here's 
the great final objective of the gospel. That you would not only be forgiven before God, but that you might actually on that final day stand in the presence of Christ in the full beauty of godliness. This is the objective of the gospel. This is what it's all building toward. When you as part of the church will stand truly in every sense beautiful in the sight of God, without spot, without wrinkle, without any blemish whatsoever. Now already, if you trust in Christ, you have been saved from the guilt of your sin. Praise God. And although you can see plenty of flaws in your own life, God has justified you if you're his. Praise the Lord for it. But on top of that, the one who began a good work when he brought you to Christ and justified you, who saved you from the guilt of sin, he is still presently active today so that right now and tomorrow and the day after that, if God gives them to you, he is still presently working, saving you presently from the pollution of sin in your life. And ultimately, on that final day, his work will have been brought to completion and you'll stand in the presence of the Lord, saved even from the presence of sin. There'll be no more blemish whatsoever in you or on you or anywhere, anything to do with you. So, so take heart in this. Your salvation doesn't rest on your own shoulders. God doesn't begin the work and then hand the rest on to you. He doesn't start building the house and get halfway up and say, right, it's your turn, take over and finish it off and put on a good roof. No, he starts the work and he will perform it. He'll do it. He's the author. Now, rejoice in that. You've got real assurance today if you're in Christ because through faith you've placed your whole eternal well-being into the care of the Savior and he is faithful to finish that work and to save you to the uttermost who have come unto God by him. He'll do it. So this is a treasure in terms of giving us comfort and assurance as we look outside of ourselves to Christ. I certainly encourage you to do that. Look outside yourself continually to Christ. Look to the one who began the work, the one who'll do it. He'll he'll perform. But then I want you to think about this idea of God as the author of salvation and the author then of our fellowship together. I want to apply it to the, the realm of joyful Christian fellowship. Paul could be joyful over the participation of the Philippians with him, knowing that despite some of their failures, and they had them, because again, they're a church of sinful people but are, that are saved by grace, despite some of their failures, nevertheless, God is continuing to work in them. He's the God who saved them at the first, and he's the God who will continue doing that work right up until the day of Christ. We ought to keep that in mind uh, as we deal with one another. Fellowship with one another can be hard to maintain because, again, where you've got a band of sinful people saved by grace, but we're we're not fully delivered from sin in our lives as yet. We're, we're, We're saved from the guilt of it. God has justified us, but we all know there's still many, many failures in our lives. We still sin in thought and word and deed far too often. And therefore, it's hard to maintain fellowship. The reality is, because we're not perfect yet, there are these times when we'll wrong one another. And when that happens, it's easy to respond with a bad spirit. And you end up with a bitter spirit against that person. Uh, and, and yet, when we have wronged one another, or at least when others have wronged us, 
what's important to remember, especially dealing with fellow believers, is that despite that person's flaws, and they have them, and you do too, God has begun a work in them. And it's not finished yet. I mean, that's part of the reason why there there still can be friction at times between God's people. I mean, praise the Lord when we're in glory. There'll be no friction whatsoever. There'll be perfect righteousness will be reigning and there'll be none of us that will give even the slightest reason for someone else to be bitter against us or whatever. There'll be perfection then. But even right now, while we're not there yet, recognize this. God has begun a work in that fellow believer because it's not finished yet. That's, that's why there's these times of friction and difficulty. But remember, it, the work will be finished. The day's coming when it will be finished, when the thing that annoys you right now, the thing that's got on your nerve, the thing that's maybe where they've wronged you quite significantly, that'll be dealt with. The work's not finished in them yet, but, but it will be. It's in the hand of God. The Lord who authored the work, he'll bring it to completion. And recognize it, the day will come when you'll stand with that person, the one that maybe at different times you struggle to get on with and so on. You'll stand in perfect fellowship with that person in glory because the one who began a good work will finish it. He'll perform it right through to the day of Christ. We're to keep this in mind as we deal with those around us. They, They might not be perfect yet. They might be far from it, just as you are, far from perfection. But, as far as you can tell, God has begun the work. You can trust him to continue doing it. You know, rather than ourselves focusing on what's not done yet, and let's face it, that's, that's easy to do. You see the problems in one another. But rather than focusing on what isn't done yet, and the, the areas where the Lord still has a great deal of work still to go, far better to rejoice that the work has begun, to praise the Lord for the fruits of grace that there are, And to rejoice that the day is coming when the work will be finished. When we'll stand together, beautified with godliness in the presence of Christ. Let me say finally finally to the gratitude for this fellowship. I think that's the big idea in the whole passage. Paul is explaining his thankfulness for the Philippians. And... To to paraphrase the section, he's saying essentially, every time I remember you, I'm thanking my God for you. It's it's motivated by joy, joy which flows from the fact that you've participated with me in the gospel from the first day right to now. That, That joy, it also flows from the fact that I'm confident in God who began a good work in you. He'll perform it. And it's appropriate for me to have this joy and thankfulness for you because, well, you've found a place in my heart since both in my imprisonment, in my gospel ministry. You've continued to be participants with me. It's quite appropriate that I'm thankful and joyful over you. And he's saying, God is my witness. I long after you with the the affection, the love, the bowels of Christ. He's saying, I'm I'm full of joy. I'm full of thankfulness over you. And I've got good reason for it. That's the big picture. Now, what, what a challenge that should be to you and me. As you think about your prayer life, are you in the habit of regularly praying regarding fellow believers, not just to pray for them when they're in trouble, but actually stopping to give thanks to God for them. Because that's what Paul's saying. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's not just saying, I'm thankful for you. He's saying, I, in prayer, I thank God 
This is a, a matter that I often come back to as I'm praying and seeking the face of the Lord. I thank God for you. My fellowship with you, it fills me with joy and, and I return it to God in thankfulness. Now, of course, Paul had some good reasons to thank God for the fellowship of the Philippian church. You know, they were taking fellowship seriously. They'd invested in him. They'd stood shoulder to shoulder with him in many ways. And I suppose there's a challenge in that for us. You know, are, are you participating with fellow believers around you such that they have good reason to be thankful for you? Because you're actually striving as much as you can to be a blessing to them? Or are you, like the Philippian church, striving to be you know, worthy of making someone thankful? That, that you're, you're striving for their good and therefore they, they've got reason to come to God and say, Lord, thank you for that person. Thank you for how you've used them in my life. You know, especially as we think about the local church here where God has brought us together, he's knit us into a spiritual family, and we're to be invested in one another, to genuinely care for one another. Are you seeking to fellowship in such a manner that others around you have every reason to say, Lord, thank you for that one. They've had such an impact on me for good. You know, how sad it is when the opposite is true. And we don't take Christian or Christian duty seriously and Maybe even you become a hindrance rather than a help. Are you living so that others would be thankful for your fellowship? But then to come back to that earlier question, are you seeking to be thankful before God for your family in the Lord? Are you grateful to God for the Christian family that God has given to you, the local church, and even the church further afield as well? Can I suggest that if if you're purposely setting aside time in prayer to thank God for fellow believers, it'll rescue you from a bitter and a grumbling spirit. You know, at times, other believers will wrong you. But if even then you are purposing to meditate upon some of the ways in which God has maybe used that person for your good, even if, even if they didn't mean good to you, maybe even then, sometimes... I think of think of Paul who can talk about negative circumstances and, uh, at times and say, well, nevertheless, it fell out for the furtherance of the gospel. There was, there was good came from it. Well, even then, if someone's wronged you are, are you, are you seeking to meditate upon some of the ways in which God has used them for your good and upon some of the ways in which your God and Savior is maybe even glorified in, in their life and genuinely seeking them to cultivate a spirit of thankfulness for that person, for others around us. You'll find if you're doing that, it's very hard to hold a grudge. Near impossible to hold a grudge or a bitter spirit if you're in the habit of thanking God for someone as much as you can. It's hard to maintain bitterness if you're, if you're praying with thankfulness over some of the little areas where that person has been used for your good. Again, it's very easy to focus on the flaws because we all have them. They're real. They can irritate us. But the more you actively give yourself to thankfulness, you'll find your focus is far more upon the positive things that God has done in that fellow believer's life, the work of grace that is seen in them, and some of the little ways in which they have been a blessing to you. As you pause and try to thank God for those around you, you'll find that it saves you from bitterness and from hostility in your heart. You'll start to see all the more that the things that do bind us together, bind you together with that person, the things of Christ, the unity that you have in the gospel. 
There's a gratitude here over the, the fellowship of the Philippians. You know, when Christ saves us, um, Christ has saved us, he gave us every reason to be joyful in him. But today as we think about this little section, can I encourage you, be joyful in the Lord, in part by focusing on the work of the Lord in the church around you, in your fellow believers, in the, the family that you've got in Christ, and strive to cultivate not only joy in the Lord himself, but joy in the Lord's people. May the Lord knit us together all the more around the gospel in true and joyful Christian fellowship. May the Lord bless his word to us. Amen.